in your face. Absolutely delighted to have Sean Mulcahy in the studio to talk about drag and local government. What's happening? Well, there's a lot happening at the moment. It is. <laughs> it's, it's seemingly never-ending. Look, there is a lot of attention on drag storytime events at local councils and local libraries. There's been a lot of unfortunate incidents where events have had to cancel due to threats from far-right terrorists that are targeting these particular events. At the same time, though, there's a lot of positive movement happening in local government as well too. So we can't lose sight of all the wins that we've had. So just um, a few months ago, every council in Victoria flew the rainbow flag for the first time. So that was 79 councils across the state. We were the first jurisdiction in Australia, if not the world, for that to happen. And more and more councils are setting up advisory committees, developing action plans. And what we've seen as a result of these attacks on councils around drag storytime events is a number of councils coming out with positive statements of support and investigating things they can do to protect their local community from this hate. 45 LGBTQ uh, community organisations have uh, joined forces uh, and are demanding that the Andrews government do something to stop this vilification at drag storytime events. They want to meet with the government. They've got 25 demands. What can you tell us, Sean? Well, the most prominent of these is getting anti-vilification reforms through the state parliament as soon as possible. So at the moment, under Victorian law, we have laws that protect us from hate based on our race or religion, but there isn't the similar protection based on sexual orientation, gender identity or sex characteristics. So LGBTIQA plus people don't have the same protections that people of faith um, or of people of different cultural backgrounds might have. So we know that if we've got those laws in place, then we can cut this hate where it starts and it can avoid it escalating into the public displays of hatred that we've seen. That said, that isn't... um uh, an excuse for councils not to act. Many councils have provision under their local laws to deal with obscene or intimidating or offensive behaviour and we need to see local laws officers and Victorian police officers acting on this as well too. And we saw what happened when, um, uh, to be frank, Victoria Police did not act um, as proactively as it could have when we saw the Nazis on the steps of state parliament some months ago. And by not acting in that particular instance, it's allowed this to flourish. So we really need to see uh, councils, police and the state government take swift action to prevent um, hate from percolating in the community and then boiling up into what we're seeing now, which is attacks on libraries and the kids and parents that are attending them. So have councils improved their game over the last month or are we seeing more councils cancelling or, or putting drag story time online? It seems like, you know, there's some councils who are like, yes, these events are proceeding, big ticks there. But it seems like others are buckling at the knees. You're right, and it is a very mixed bag. What we've seen is a number of councils uh, take really strong stances. So um, we've seen Port Phillip, um, Marybeck, um, Yarra uh, and other councils pass strong motions that are saying they're going to stick by these events and ensure that they go ahead. Uh, And I want to give due credit to Mooney Valley that um, the council passed a motion in support of events going ahead and took that motion to the municipal. Association of Victoria, which is basically the peak bodies of local governments across Victoria, and their state council passed a motion about ensuring that events go ahead. So 
that should send a message to councils across the state about the need for these um, events to go ahead. And whilst I really appreciate the fact that we've got to keep the safety of kids uh, and their parents uh, at front of mind, we also have to think about if you cancel an event at a particular library, that might um, end the attacks there, but it just emboldens the attacks to go on to another library and another local council area. And I was particularly pleased to see Indigo Shire Council um, up in the northeast of the state, covers Beechworth. Um, Beechworth has a wonderful dragged out event there. They recently passed a motion about supporting these events to go ahead, and they had, um, I think, a bit of constructive criticism for their neighbours at Wangaratta who cancelled an event too. So I think we're starting to see councils now. Now, um, wake up to uh, the implications of cancelling events and the harm that that has on the community and are working together now to ensure that these events go forward. You use the term terrorists to describe these far-right activists who are disrupting drag storytime events. It's an interesting description because there is a bit of terror happening, I think, in our community about this because, you know, people are kind of scared of where's it going to end up. But just on the other side of the coin as well, well, during the so-called war on terror, you know, governments were very much, you know, we're not going to give in to terrorists, yet some councils are. Well, I take the term terrorists because that's what Port Phillip City Council called them. They passed a very strong motion calling out far-right terrorism that's attacking these events. And let's be honest with where this is coming from. These are neo-Nazi groups that are terrorising libraries, terrorising the staff that work there, often finding out staff members' emails and uh, personal mobile numbers and using that to harass them. And they're worse they are targeting the children and the parents that attend these events, threatening to turn up there and harass kids that are just going along because they love it. And, and look, these are hugely popular events. They're often sold out. Parents love it because it's a chance to meet up with other people in the local community. The children love it because it's a bright and colourful event and they get to learn some new reading skills as well too. So it's really unfortunate that we're seeing this uh, far-right um, attack on our uh, local libraries that are doing some fantastic work, and we need to be frank and honest and call it out for what it is. This isn't concerned parents that are targeting these events. These are far-right groups that are terrorising uh, libraries and those that are attending them. Are we still seeing anti-vax groups involved in this? A hundred percent. These are the same groups that believe that 15-minute cities are a UN-imposed agenda to lock people down in their homes that are railing against what they think are going to be mask mandates that are imposed by local councils. They're COVID conspiracists um, who... I would note are probably posing a greater risk to children by their refusal to get vaccinated or vaccinate their own children. And also um, people that believe that somehow uh, councils should or shouldn't be swearing allegiances to the new king. I mean, these are wacky conspiracist theorists who are just... um, trying to find something that they think will make them marginally more popular. They've had no traction at a federal level. They've had no traction at a state level. And now they're targeting local councils as the area of government that's closest to the community. So it sounds like they've become fodder for far-right activists to manipulate. Absolutely. And what we're seeing is these far-right groups are using um, this as a breeding ground to recruit people into their cause, which is extremely concerning. And that's why it's really important 
important that councils take a strong stand. So we're calling on all councils across the state to pass strong motions in support of the LGBTIQA plus community, but also to take meaningful action and do what many other councils are doing in developing advisory committees and action plans that can guide their work in this area. Who is bankrolling these groups? I mean, it's the old saying, isn't it? Follow the money. Yeah, so if you look um, at uh, Monash Council, where um, a lot of people would say this started, though it's got a bit of an antecedent history before then, uh, there was a group called Voices for Kids that was actually run by um, another group called Reignite Democracy. And when Folks might remember back at the last state election, we saw a number of these groups pop up, generally anti-vaxxers, anti-government, conspiracist theorists. So this is run by um, a a far-right anti-vaxxer who's based in, my understanding, is Portugal at the moment. So has really no connection to Monash or to the local community there. But of course, uh, they've latched onto this because they can see this as an issue to which they can recruit people to their radical right-wing conspiracy theories. So there's some big international money behind all of this. It's not just, you know, your local concerned groups or, or you know, perhaps right-wing corporate people locally. It's coming from overseas. And you're, you're quite right. Uh, it is certainly not um, a cause for concern amongst local communities. It's being driven uh, primarily from often um, times out of the state and oftentimes internationally as well too. And we're seeing um, these groups um, develop mechanisms by which they can um, call in to councils from um, different parts of the globe, um, adjust their VPNs so that they can make multiple submissions through council websites and the like. So I think what um, councils need to keep in mind is this is not being pushed by local community members. This is being pushed by people often kilometres, thousands of kilometres away from uh, the towns that are subject to this um, attack and hate and that uh, it's being pushed um, by people that really don't have a fundamental concern about drag story time. They just want to use this as an issue to leverage people into their um, wacky calls. Has it got worse over the last month since we last spoke? I'd I'd venture that it's actually gotten better. And I think um, in part that's due to the work of the Rainbow Community Angels, which I'm to some degree involved in, which is a group of community members, LGBTQA plus community members, that have gathered together to rally around um, these events to make sure they can go ahead safely. So where we've seen cancellations like in um, Nulumbik and in Port Phillip, uh, the Rainbow Community Angels have been able to stage these events outside the library spaces and ensure that um, there are angels... um, So people wearing big, bright wings to protect um, people that are attending these from um, having to witness any um, anti-LGBTIQA plus protesters and the like. And this has got a long history drawing back to um, uh, the trials of um, those that um, bashed and killed Matthew Shepard in the um, United States where um, some uh, folks might be aware of the Westboro Baptist Church was was picketing the um, court hearings there and community members gathered around as angels to protect the families that were going into the court so that they didn't have to witness that anti-LGBTIQA plus propaganda. 
your rainbow local government campaign, you know, which was all about getting councils to fly the the rainbow flag, the infrastructure you put in place to 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 lobby councils to do that has given us great infrastructure to work with. I think on 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 this on this drag story time campaign and and fighting back. Absolutely, and look. I will say that this is something new to councils. We've not seen this kind of attack at a local council level. We've been doing incredibly well over the last few years in um, driving uh, progressive LGBTIQA plus reforms across the state, whether that's flying the rainbow flag, whether it's getting advisory committees set up, whether it's developing action plans, whether it's, I think, the biggest attendance ever from the local government sector at this year's Pride March earlier this year. And a lot of councils now taking rainbow ticket accreditation to ensure their services are um, inclusive and accepting of LGBTIQA plus people. And this, um, these attacks on drag story time will, I, I, I'll confess, took us by surprise. And there's been um, a kind of um, knee-jerk reaction, um, I would say, to um, ensure the safety of people that are attending to cancel the events. And now I think we're starting to move to the place where people are starting to see, actually, no, that's not the best way going forward. Uh, and that does involve challenging local police that might <laughs> want to shut down events because it's the easiest thing to do. Uh, but I think we're starting to see councils um, grow a bit of a spine um, and stand up to these bullies and ensure the events can go ahead safely, which we know they can um, if we have community working with um, police and other authorities to make sure these events can go ahead safely. I mean, you really get a sense of just how loopy the times are. When you think back to the 90s when Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, was such a hit, no one was talking about drag queens grooming kids then. Um, And yet we're in this position of just ludicrous nonsense. Truly it is. And, I mean, these are the same people that would have grown up watching Dame Edna, you know, and probably had a great deal of respect for Barry. Um, I honestly don't believe that they're actually that concerned about drag queens. I think they just think this is um, a lightning rod issue which they can jump onto, a kind of culture war imported from the US which they can use for their own nefarious ends. Um, they, They don't care about children. They don't care about children's safety. You know, the people that run Voices for Kids don't even have children themselves, you know. Um, They are not concerned parents or anything of the like. They're just people that are latching on to an issue to have a go. It's interesting that you mentioned the US. I mean, not that long ago, I saw this video on YouTube of um, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, and uh, Rudy was in drag, you know. Um, That was before all of this, of course, and it became a right-wing lightning rod. But it just shows... Um, the change that's happened so quickly that's kind of, you know, revolving around this. Well, and also the kind of um, Trumpian dimension to it as well. I mean, I I think um, Donald Trump isn't somebody that really has much of a um, political... um, he doesn't have strong political ideas. He'll just latch on to what he thinks is popular in the moment. And I think that's the same for these groups that are targeting drag story time events. They don't um, really um, have a strong political view on the matter one way or another. They just think this will be popular amongst um, people that they want to recruit to their cause, which is fundamentally a cause about um, to do with 
um, removing um, vaccine requirements, mask requirements, and some sort of weird conspiracy theories they have about the United Nations. How is this impacting on the performers? Uh, yeah, it is really tough. And my heart goes out to the artists that have been subject to these um, attacks because I think you also have to remember, like, this is coming off the back of a period of lockdowns where it was extremely hard on performing artists across the state. And now at a time when we're just, um, well, we are opening back up again and performers are getting more opportunities to perform. We're seeing um, artists being attacked. So it is tough in that respect, but it's also tough, some of the rhetoric that's being directed towards artists um, uh, accusations of being groomers and the like, taking photos um, from adult events out of context and suggesting that artists are performing that way in front of children. Now, um, I've, I've got a background in performance myself. I'm, I used to um, be a theatre actor and that. And you know how to perform to an audience. You know the difference between when you're performing in front of a ch- children's audience and an adult audience. Everyone knows that. Um, but unfortunately... Um, partly due to the more hyper-connected environment we're in and increasing sharing across social media. People are latching on to images and things that performers may have said or done and imputing um, horrible accusations towards them. So it is really tough on the performers. And what I would suggest to the community is get out there and support your drag artists at this particular point in time. Um, if a show's going on, turn up. Um, support them in whatever way you can because... Uh, Whilst the attacks are on drag performers at this particular point in time, the underlying cause of these attacks is a fear towards trans people um, who are the brunt of a series of increasingly um, vitriolic attacks. But if you don't think they won't be coming for gay, lesbian and bisexual people next, you'd be incredibly naive. Sean Mulcahy, it's great to see you here at 3CR. Thank you for your insights and uh, the local government campaign that you're running, the Rainbow Local Government Campaign, uh, is truly terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, James. And here's Glass Knight and the Pips.
Finding Her Beat explores women who perform the traditionally male-dominated ancient Japanese drumming practice of taiko. 
And earlier this week, I spoke to filmmaker Dawn Mickelson from Emergence Pictures, who produced, edited and co-directed the documentary. And she joined us from Lake City in Minnesota. Dawn Mickelson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I loved finding her beats. The film really captures the rhythm and the sound of Tycho. Well, thank you. That was our goal. <laughs> the rhythm and, and the feeling of it as well. I know when we went into the sound mix, I was like, I want people to vibrate. That is my goal. <laughs> and it really captured the emotion, you know. Uh, the, the, the performance in, in Minnesota that you, that you kind of had the build up to, it really captured the emotion of just how important it was for these uh, artists who had been marginalised so much. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that nobody left that stage unchanged. You know, these, these with a li- with, this was a life-changing experience for not just the performers, but the crew who worked on this film. And it continues to, uh, it continues to offer surprises and excitement as we get into distribution as well. But it's, uh, you know, watching these these superstar musicians come together on one stage and really claim their place in in a field that for some reason didn't think that they deserve to be there and there's something absolutely beautiful about creating your space and saying i deserve to be here yeah absolutely and you captured that as well i guess taiko traditionally has been dominated by men and, you know, it's meant that women and non-binary folks have been marginalized. Correct. I mean, originally, my understanding is that Tycho, um, you know, it, it came from more spiritual and community traditions. It wasn't a performance art until recently. Uh, but, you know, in, in some ways, it was a way of speaking to the gods. And in a, you know, patriarchal society, um, who, who gets to speak to the gods? It's men. And so it's only been in the last 20, little over 20 years that women have been allowed to play at all, um, let alone being on stage, which took longer. Tell us the backstory to how you discovered this incredible group of women. Well, uh, Jennifer Weir, who is one of the main participants in the film, she's uh, the woman who brought this whole thing together. She's also been a friend of mine for over 20 years. And we met for lunch one day and, you know, talked about what it was like to be women in our fields. I'm in film, she's in Tycho, and those are both very male-dominated fields. And she talked about this exciting thing that was going to come up in a couple of years that she was planning to bring all these women together and wondered if I could just help her um, film the concert itself, because most musicians or performers like to have recordings of their performances, you know, for grants and things like that. Uh, but when she asked me, I, I just, you know, I turned to her, I said, Jen, this is more than, this is more than a concert video. This is a movement. This is, this is something that we can't ignore. And so we immediately started making the film. She came on as a producer uh, and I brought on Carrie Pickett, who was the director of photography and my co-director. And we shot it in the cinema verite style. So we shot it, you know, without interviews so that these stories could, you know, kind of reveal themselves organically without our uh, <laughs> prompting, if you will. 
Um, and we did it with a crew that was almost entirely female, non-binary, queer, or Asian, or a combination of those descriptors um, to, to reflect what the film is about, which is, you know, raising up the voices of, of those who have not been invited to the party. What really struck me was how the participants all built each other up and supported each other and encouraged each other and were really affirming. That was a thread throughout the film. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, so often, you know, we get the, the message that we need to compete, that we need to, um, that somebody needs to come out on top. And I think with Finding Herbeat, it really was the message that, by raising one another up, we all do better. Um, you know, there's a senator in Minnesota, which is where I'm from, who uh, Paul Wellstone, who passed away, who said, uh, we all do better when we all do better. And I think that's exactly what they were channeling, you know, is this, this notion that we're, we're going to do better because we're raising one another up. It also struck me as a very Minnesota story, even though, of course, the uh, participants were from all around the world. Just that backdrop of the freezing cold weather in February when they all arrived to prepare for the performance and those amazing skies and the snow. It was really visually a great backdrop. (laughs) Well, that wasn't the intent, but I'm glad you enjoyed it that way. You know, it it was in Minnesota, uh, because that's where we were. And I think that, you know, I think that there was something too, about doing this event in a place that was completely foreign to our Japanese performers, as well as our performers from either coasts. Um, They were in a completely different space than they were accustomed to. And, and I think with that, a lot of those preconceived notions of what um, what Tycho is, who they were as performers, all those things um, melted away a little bit be- because they were in such a new space. And, you know, if that's Minnesota in the freezing cold winter, let's have it. <laughs> you also travelled to Japan uh, in the warmer weather and captured where these performers are from and the, and the origins of Tycho. Uh, that was really beautiful as well. Thank you. Yeah, Carrie and our other cinematographer, Shiho, uh, Shiho Fukata, um, shot in Japan. And yeah, it that was a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And so important, I think, to really get a sense of where this beautiful art form comes from. You know, it's this, uh, it's an ancient tradition. And, you know, it's something that every community in Japan has has a taiko group, um, you know, it, it, Jen refers to it as, you know, it's like having a marching band, you know, every, every small town has a marching band and the same is true for taiko, but we were really talking to the top of the top um, female performers from Japan, uh, you know, Cheiko plays for Kodo and was one of the founding members and Kodo is one of the, if not the largest, uh, well, most well-known internationally taiko group. And uh, yeah, it's, It was so exciting to have them a part of this. And now someday we hope to to bring this film to Japan. And uh, Kodo is going to be helping us with that. You also filmed it in the lead up to COVID. Well, 
or early <laughs> stages really of COVID. You really captured in those final weeks before the performance when they were rehearsing that COVID was becoming more and more dominant throughout the world. And that kind of trepidatious kind of sense that the production might not happen. What was that like as a filmmaker? That must have been kind of scary. Well, it's funny because I think we realized um, how close we were after the fact. And it wasn't until we were going back and listening to the news that was happening during that time, uh, you know, searching for the various news stories that we, we realized how close we were. As it was happening, you know, everybody was so invested in just putting on the best show they could. And there were it was this growing tension that something bad was going to happen. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't think anybody had any idea of how large COVID was going to be. Um, you know, so it, it was a surprise to, to everyone. Um, and I think that over the time in which that, those final scenes were shot, it became clearer and clearer that this was, this was something that we hadn't experienced before. Yeah, you captured a real kind of, you know, historical perspective. Like looking back on the film three years later, it also, you know, explores what it's like, you know, putting on a production in those early stages of, of COVID. That's an unexpected kind of historical <laughs> perspective and twist that this documentary captures. <laughs> it's funny because when we were first editing it, we were like, do we need to include COVID? Because we don't want this film to be a COVID film. But, you know, it, it was just so clear that we couldn't avoid it and that it had become its own character in the film. And uh, certainly we had no idea it was coming and we're going to make this film regardless. And we're just happy that uh, they were able to perform in the end before, I mean, things locked down a week or two later. So uh, we, this this whole event almost didn't happen and then it would have been a very different film. <laughs> you must have an enormous amount of footage that you didn't use uh, and you must have an enormous amount of kind of, you know, emotional scenes that perhaps you had to make some editorial decisions to cut out as well. Is that, is that the case? Oh, yes. I mean, this film was... Um... It was over 200 hours of footage um, because we were sh shooting in that cinema verite style. And, you know, so the, it was a, it was a painful, but um, beautiful process <laughs> in honing it down to really those pieces that said, this is what this was really about. Um, and, you know, certainly we could have told stories of each one of these women and how powerful they were and the struggles they had to go through to, to get there. And, you know, a lot of these women, I think, um, really questioned, you know, they were having kind of that, um, I forget what that's called, uh, but where you, you're very good at something, but you don't believe you are. Uh, and so, you know, they were, they were all feeling this, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not special. I'm, and to watch them turn around and realize how special they were, I think that's a story that played out in so many of these women's stories. And um, yeah, it was truly powerful. And that must have given you an enormous amount of satisfaction. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, just to be able to be a part of this in, in the way we were, um, you know, we're not Tycho performers. <laughs> and to be allowed into this world and, and be with these women and watch them change the world and change the way they're perceived. And since then, um, there have been some marked changes in uh, the Tycho world uh, writ large across the across the 
entire, you know, the globe. Um, and I think these women were a big part of that change. And you are seeing more women on the main stage with these major touring groups now. Wow. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about those changes because that sounds profound. Well, I mean, one is is simply that the women in Japan had never played, uh, they had never performed with one another because they were all in separate groups. They were all kind of the one woman in this group and the one woman in this group and they hadn't played together. And so uh, once they were allowed to play again, after, you know, I think it was um, winter of 2021, uh, they, they did a special performance of just the Japanese players to the world Taiko conference. And, you know, that's, that's, that's in Tokyo. That is uh, in the heart of that community and that made a truly profound statement uh, to the world. And I think that you are also seeing it again. Um, if you look at the rosters of some of these major Taiko groups, you are seeing more women front and center than you would have seen five years ago. Dawn Mickelson, congratulations on finding her beat. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. And Finding Her Beat screens from July 25th at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival at Cinema Nova. I'm gonna be 
Blondie there, eat to the beat. I am delighted to have when you wore braces, actor and playwright, Rachel Edmonds on the line. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about your play. Tell us all about it. Um, <laughs> well, it's about two sisters and it's um, about how far can you push your family, really? It's that kind of um, what happens when you put two people together who are a bit estranged, but it's family, so it's a bit different. So it's um, it's a good, intense, really interesting and really um, hopefully something people are going to identify with in their lives with their own families. It sounds like a real emotional roller coaster to watch. I'm hoping it will be. It certainly um, feels that way in rehearsals at the moment. What did it feel like writing it? Um, did it feel like a roller coaster? It has been in a sense because it's been about six years in the making. I um, penned the first draft um, when I was recovering um, from a surgery, actually, um, back about six years ago, and I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea how to write a play and since then it's gone from what it was back then to about only about 15% of, of what it was remains and um, it's definitely grown and it's been through developments and now here to finally getting it staged. Um, it's definitely been a roller coaster. <laughs> And what a journey and what an amazingly constructive thing to do, um, turning something negative into a positive. I suppose so. Um, I've always, I guess, been fascinated by the human experience and different thoughts that pop into my head and I'm much, much worse at explaining my thoughts on the radio than I am at inventing characters and explaining it through their behaviour and their emotions and their relationships with each other. And you said before that you'd never written a play before and kind of didn't know how to go about it, but you've certainly yeah. achieved it. Um, wow. Oh, thank you. I mean, I've written theatre before, but I've worked um, with verbatim text that other people have provided for me, in a sense, um, and I've worked... I've done short comedy pieces, but this is my first, um, I guess, full play. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And it's changed a lot, you were saying, over the six years. It has, yeah. Well, one of the major elements I wrote in the first time and even kept in the first development we did got completely scrapped in the second development. Um, and that was really positive for the play and um, meant I had to go in and write um, things really, really differently. We had, um, thankfully, some really great people on board with that development who were able to um, help me, um, yeah, navigate that, um, yeah. It sounds like it's been a really collaborative process. So, yeah, it definitely has. At first, I mean, at first it was me. Um, at home, just hyper-focusing, writing a bunch of stuff. And then 
my um, friend and the fellow actor who's playing the other role. Um, I said, hey, I'm kind of writing this role and it seems to really suit you. Would you be interested? And she took a look at the script and said, yes, absolutely. This looks amazing. I'd really like to be involved. And um, from there, we've had um, other actors because when I was working um, on the writing, I had another actor, two other actors between different developments playing the role that I've written for myself. Um, we had a dramaturg um, on board, um, Kate Hood as well, who um, I'm really, really grateful for um, her insight in the process and um, and the other actors as well. Um, and, you know, we've got our director on board, we've got our production coordinator. I'm used to producing things, so I'm having trouble letting go a little bit. Um, but it's been, yeah, a lot and lots of people who've encouraged me along the way and have given me tips and tricks. So it's never just, it's never... A, even when I feel like I'm on my own because I'm just, you know, in my room writing, it's it's never something you can achieve on your own. I think there's always um, other people there supporting me. You mentioned your co-star, of course, that is the wonderful yeah. activist and performer Sonia Marcon. Do you feel like you kind of like sisters now? Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> it's been so long um, through this this journey that she's stuck with me with this play um, that I really would have loved to have staged a couple of years ago before COVID kind of got in the way. And, um, and yeah, and I, I just showed um, one of our little cards to someone earlier and said, oh, do we actually look like sisters? And they're like, yeah, actually you do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but we get along probably a lot better than the uh, sisters do in the play. <laughs> Yeah, they sound like they have a really tumultuous relationship. Yeah, it's um, very rollercoastery and very um, nappy and dantery and and there's love there, but there's also just so, so much more. Um, there's, you know, past trauma, there's current trauma, there's um, disabilities thrown in the mix, there's sexuality, there's... Um, all sorts in there that we all have as people. We all have so many elements of ourselves and um, put two people in a room um, and just leave them there and things will come out. It sounds like performing, it takes you to quite a physical state. Like um, it must have a huge impact on you physically as well as emotionally. Um, it does, yeah. I mean, I'm disabled myself, but Sonia um, is also disabled um, in different ways. And, yeah, it's quite it's quite physical. We were even just rehearsing a couple of days ago and, and um, yeah, getting getting into the sense of the emotional sense of things and the, um, the physical aspects of it as well. It's, um, it's definitely not the most physical play I've done, um, but it's... Yeah, it's challenging in its own way because it's so all over the place. Um, there's, yeah, such an, an arc to it, um, especially as my character to the the way she starts at the play to the way she is at the end. The energy, the physical energy is so different. Um, so that's, yeah, been fun to play with and it will be interesting to see um, where it goes in the next couple of weeks before we um, get on stage. What's it like performing in something you wrote? Yeah, it's weird. I almost thought maybe I shouldn't do this and, and then I went, no, no, I wrote this 
this part with myself in mind and I know it's been a while but I really want to do this and I have um, done it before um, in in some comedy work that I've done and um, but this time around it's been I've, I've got a director um, I'm not necessarily as used to being directed in the things I've written for myself um, and that's actually been really really wonderful to get um, his input and to hear what he thinks and of the script and, and where he'd like to go and what he wants me to hold back on and and, and all that kind of um, thing. So it's been, uh, it's definitely something that I need a director to direct me with. It's a lot harder to, in a way, to perform your own work without that extra eye on you to make sure you're going in the right direction. The director, of course, is Grant Watson. He sounds like a great nurturer. Yeah, it's been a really interesting um, collaborative process that we've had in rehearsals, which is a little bit different to um, a lot of the way I've worked with directors in the past, but there is only the three of us, um, and so that makes it quite intimate in and of itself. Um, Yeah, he's had a really um, great vision and, and also a great way of letting us discover um, and present ideas and things as well. So I think it's working really well. And, of course, it is presented by Misfit Toys Productions with the wonderful playwright um, D.L. Turnbull, who's the brains behind uh, Misfit Toys Productions. It must be great to work mm-hmm. with them as well. Absolutely. They've been um, really, really great to work with, so down to earth and, and um, so transparent. In the process, like I said, I'm actually used to producing my own work. So um, having to take a step back has been interesting for me um, and and seeing the way that they do things and, um, and what they have to offer as well. And also, you know, getting their feedback on the play as they are a writer themselves. So um, that's been great too. Do you think that having to take that step back and let other people produce it, do you think that's going to make you a better producer? Um, yes. <laughs> I think seeing how other people work in their professions that I'm a part of always makes me better, personally, I think that. Um, I can always learn from other people, so I'm enjoying learning. Well, it sounds like it's been a wonderful thing for you to do. It sounds like you're – what I'm really excited about is the fact that you're, like, saying, well, you know, I'm not quite sure where it's going to go in the next two weeks. It'll be interesting. It sounds like there's some real excitement and spontaneity happening. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, the script is, is solid and, um, I mean, I love it. <laughs> but um, there's so many choices and options Um and, um, yeah, I'm excited to see where we end up by the time we get to performing because I already know that it's going to be good and I'm hoping we can make it great. Well, you have a great venue as well, the Bluestone Church Art Space in Footscray. What a wonderful venue for a play. Yeah, I've, I've worked there before and I just saw something there just last week and um, it's a really versatile venue. You can do so much with it. Um, the last time I performed there, I performed in Traverse, so I had audience either side. Well, that will not be what we're doing this time. Um, but, yeah, it's a great venue. Um, I enjoy working there, yeah. 
Well, it previews July 25th and then it uh, plays from the 27th to 29th of July at the Bluestone Church Art Space in Footscray. Uh, playwright and actor of When You Wore Braces, Rachel Edmonds. It's been a true joy chatting with you on the show. Um, can't wait to see the play. Thank you so much for having me. The wonderful Rachel Edmonds there. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>